Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and Acts 3, 1 through 10, or you can follow along on your insert. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like the 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here, or, um, and all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answering, answered, saying, since there, will be, since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the, when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and, and to those who were ready went in and went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, "Lord, Lord, open to us." But he answered, "Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour." And Acts three, one through ten. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and, immediate, uh, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Jay just read to us, which is the very word of God. Uh, we should ask that he would teach us. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but that you have spoken to us in your word. Lord, we, we read it, we hear it, but without your spirit, it does nothing. We pray, Lord, that you by your spirit would take your word and you would apply it to our lives. You would illuminate it. That you would allow us to, to understand what you have for us and that our lives would be shaped not just by information, but by you. Teach us, convict us, comfort us, encourage us, change us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. 
My name's Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are really, really glad that you are here. Uh, this morning, we are wrapping up a very brief sermon series um, on the work of Christ. And today, we're looking at the, uh, the future work of Christ. And you hear that, and maybe you think, why are we doing that? Well, maybe this will help. Uh, when I went to college in 19... I didn't have a clue. Yeah, Eric got it. I didn't have a clue um, what I wanted to do. I didn't have a clue of what I wanted to study. I didn't have a clue of what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. In fact, uh, I don't think I would have gone to college except that my father made me go to college. I would have been completely content flipping burgers at the local Wendy's and dating my high school sweetheart, but my dad said no. And he said, you're going to go to college. And, and honestly, I am eternally grateful to my father for that. Uh, when, but when I got to college, because I lacked ambition, because I lacked direction, because I lacked goals, because I, had, I lacked any sense of where this might be leading, I floundered. I mean, I loved college. I mean, who doesn't love college? Three hours a day of responsibility and 21 hours a day to do whatever you want. I really liked that, but academics weren't my bag. I wasn't, I wasn't into them. But I was surrounded by people who, who showed up and they had a very clear understanding of why they were in college. They had a very clear idea of what they wanted to do when they graduated from college. Some wanted to, to go on to med school and become doctors. Some wanted to become lawyers. Some wanted to become teachers. Some wanted to go home and they wanted to take over their family business. There were all these people that had these very clear ideas. I was always baffled by them, that they would have these clear ideas as 18-year-olds 18 18 of what they wanted to do, but they did. And here's the thing. They actually did very, very well academically in college. And what I learned as, as, as I looked at them and I thought about myself is that people who have direction, people who have goals, do very, very differently than people who don't. People who, who have direction and goals make very different decisions than people who don't have any goals or direction. If you know you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, you study. You, you, you open your books and you do the work. You show up at class instead of hitting the snooze and sleeping in. You spend time in the afternoons in the library rather than on the disc golf course. Now, why do I tell you that? It's because I think it illustrates a, a truth that, 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 that forms and informs all of us. What you think about the future, what you expect in the future will have a profound shaping directing and influencing power over your present. What you think about the future affects how you live your life in the present. Again, why does that matter? Well, think about this. The Bible states clearly 
that Jesus will one day come again. He will come visibly. He will come suddenly in his glorified and resurrected body. And the Bible also tells us that as God's people, we should eagerly long for his coming. And that, that, that longing, it should, it should impact and it should direct and it should shape the way we live our lives today. In the same way that when you know that you've got out-of-town guests coming into town to stay with, it, stay with you at your house, you prepare for their arrival, knowing that one day Jesus will return in all of his glory. It should lead us to ask the question, how are we to prepare for his arrival? In order to answer that question, we have to know what Jesus is going to do when he arrives. That is what theologians call the future work of Christ. That's why we're thinking about what we're thinking about this morning. So what, what is Jesus gonna do when he returns? He's gonna do lots and lots of things. I want us to think about three things this morning. And the first is this, as our bridegroom, Jesus is coming for his bride. Now, what do you know about Jewish weddings? According to Michael Burden, his book, What Christians Ought to Believe, Jewish weddings went something like this. After a formal betrothal, which you might think of as sort of uh, an engagement on steroids, it could be up to a year or more before, uh, for a bride to have to wait for her future husband to come and formally fetch her for their wedding ceremony. When the time of the wedding approached, the bride with her attendants would wait in anticipation each evening for the arrival of the bridegroom's party where they, they, would, they would take her to his house. When the bridegroom's party finally did arrive and, and, they, and they ushered her out of her house onto the street, sometimes they would put her in a carriage, sometimes she would sit on a donkey, they, or they might walk, but there would be people celebrating in the streets with them, dancing and singing, playing musical instruments. When they got to the bridegroom's house, the bridegroom would receive the bride into his house. There would be the reading of a marriage contract. A blessing would be given, and then the couple would consummate their marriage. And then for up to a week, there would be this huge party. Now, what does that have to tell us about Christ's future work? Well, one way the Bible describes Jesus' future work is that he is the bridegroom who is coming to fetch his bride, who is the church, to take her into his home where they will celebrate with all their family and friends and have a wedding feast, what the Apostle John describes in Revelation 21 as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's, it's what we look forward to every time we come to the table. Now, a wedding feast is a, is, is a staggeringly beautiful and powerful image for what's gonna happen when Christ returns because it paints for us a picture of a celebration. Of, of, a, of a consummation 
as well as a feast and family and festivity and deep, rich fellowship all rolled into one. But more than that, it reminds us of how Jesus feels about you, about us. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What does what what this mean for today? Well, let's think for a minute about the parable that Jay read to us from Matthew 25. Now, what you have to keep in mind as you, as you think about this parable is that these are the words of Jesus himself. He is the bridegroom. What's he doing with this parable? He's warning us. He's warning us. He's saying that you have got to be ready. You've got to be prepared for his return. But more than that, he's saying, you're gonna have to wait. You're gonna have to wait. And while you wait, you, you're gonna have to be faithful. What might that look like? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to his protege, Titus, in Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works." Beloved, what Paul says there should not sound to you like a burden. Because if you are really gripped, really gripped by the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ, his ways are a delight. If you've ever been smitten, let alone in love with someone, you know what happens All of a sudden, you develop all these new interests, don't you? All of a sudden, you begin to sort of like what he likes or like what she likes. Her loves become your loves, whether it's musical taste or the kinds of books that she likes to read or or movies that he likes to watch or hobbies or whatever the other person likes. For some reason, something just happens. You begin to like things that you never knew you liked because the other, peop- other person likes those things. Why does this happen? Well, it's because God created us to be, become like what we love, to, to worship what we adore. If you've tasted the love of Jesus, your loving bridegroom. You can't help but more and more love what he loves and hate what he hates. And what that means is that as you and I, as we wait for him, we will be faithful to him. Why? Because we are enraptured and intoxicated by his transforming and empowering love. What is Christ, our bridegroom, doing right now 
as we wait for him. By his spirit, he is sanctifying us. He is cleansing us by the washing of water with the word. In other words, he is getting us ready for this wedding. What should we be doing as we await the arrival of our bridegroom? Number one, we should be cultivating this longing for our bridegroom. How do you do that? You do it by feeding on his word, by meditating on his promises. You do it by by meeting him by faith at his table and tasting and seeing that he is really good. You do it by talking with him in prayer. You do it by fanning into flame our hearts by worshiping him together with all of his people. Number two, we, we need to press into this faithfulness, this call to faithfulness. How do we do that? We do that by, by trusting him, taking him at his word, and obeying him. Obedience isn't a bad thing, it's a beautiful thing. And number three, we should keep reminding ourselves in the face of our failures, in the face of our sin, that his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, but that as a bride rejoices over his bride, he rejoices and will rejoice over you. If someone watched the way you live your life this week, would they know that you were betrothed to Jesus? And if so, what would they see? If someone watched the way you live your life this week, would they know that you long for and love Jesus, who longs for and loves you? And if so, what would they see? Jesus is our bridegroom who is coming for his bride. Second, as the creator, Jesus is coming to make all things new. Now think for a minute about the healing of the lame man that Jay read about from Acts chapter three. Peter and John, they go to the temple and they run into this man who has been lame his entire life. Every day somebody has to carry him down to the temple so that he can beg in order to feed himself. When he sees Peter and John coming, he just sees two more guys and he does what he always does, right? He says, you know, help, you got got any money you can give me? Peter and John don't have any money. So Peter says to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And instantly the man is healed and we're told leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and praising God. One commentator reflecting on this passage said that this healing may be thought of as an x-ray and a preview. This guy writes, as an x-ray, it makes visible to outside observers the unseen inner cure that faith in Jesus produces. Astonishing 
as it is for a man of 40 who has never walked to leap in a temple, the cure of hearts paralyzed in sin is even greater. Do you believe that? As a preview, it shows the final completion of Jesus' restorative work. When believers' physical bodies will fully experience the salvation which we already taste in the form of first fruits. Astonishing as it is for a lame man to leap, it is nothing when compared to the cosmic restoration to come, the the restoration of all things. What is this commentator saying? He's saying exactly what God says in Revelation 25.1, that when Jesus returns, God is going to make all things new. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is committed not only to redeeming and restoring our souls, but he is also committed to redeeming and restoring everything physical that has been touched or tainted or infected by sin, broken bodies, that are ravaged by sickness and disease, broken families, broken and deeply divided cultures. How should this, how should this inform the way you live your life today or tomorrow? There's this fascinating verse in Revelation 21. The apostle John is describing the new Jerusalem, which isn't somewhere Christians go, but it's who Christians will be When Jesus returns, John says that there will be no temple there and no sun or moon there because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are there. And then John says this in verse 24, he says, by its light, by the light of the sun, by the light of God, the glory of God, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And just a few verses later, He continues, they, the nations, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, what does that mean? If you've ever read the last battle in C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia, you you may remember what the fawn said to Lucy, Peter, and Edmund when they entered into Aslan's land. Lucy, Peter, and Edmund are looking around trying to make sense of what they are seeing. They see England in all of its glory. They see Professor Kirk's house that had been destroyed in the bombings. And Peter says this, he says, I thought that house had been destroyed. And the fawn says, so it was. But you are now looking at the England within the England. The real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. Friends, I think Lewis is giving us a glimpse into what John is saying in Revelation 21. When God says that he is going to make all things new, he is not saying that he is going to wad up all of creation throw it into the trash can and start over. Instead, what he's saying is that he's going to take whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise in this world, and he is going to sanctify 
and glorify and weave those things into the new Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that what you do now matters. Your labor is not in vain. How will what you do now be transformed and woven into the new heavens and the new earth? The apostle Paul tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man or woman has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, no one really knows. But I can't wait to see and to hear and to touch and to taste and to smell all that God is going to do with the good art, with the, the good music, with the good food, with the good everything that we experience and we engage in now when he comes again. What you do matters, guys. So first, as our bridegroom, Jesus is coming for his bride. Second, as the creator, Jesus is coming to make all things new. And third, as judge, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Now, I know that the idea of judgment is, is pretty unpopular today. But here's the thing, it's not unpopular for everyone. Take Psalm 96, for instance. The psalm that, that we used to call, uh, that was used to call us to worship this morning. Look at verses 10 to 13 in your bulletin. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. For the Israelites, judgment is not a bad thing. It isn't something to be downplayed or dismissed. Rather, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated and longed for. In Psalm 96, it causes people, and it even causes trees to sing for joy. And you think, well, of course. The Israelites rejoiced over God coming in judgment. This psalm was written maybe 3,000 years ago. They were, they were so naive. They were, they, they were so uneducated. They were so primitive but we are so much more advanced. We are so much more civilized. That's one way you can think about it. But in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf says that the rejection of, God, of a God who judges may uh, very well might be evidence that you live a pampered, safe, comfortable life. What that means is that perhaps your objection to God's coming judgment has more to do with the fact that you go to bed every night with a full stomach feeling safe and secure. But what if the world you lived in 
was a world of systemic injustice? What if the world that you lived in was a world of bullying and violence and oppression? Here's the thing. It is. You're just not the one experiencing the injustice or bullying or violence or oppression. The thought that there might be a day when the wicked will be firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak and the marginalized and the oppressed will be vindicated would probably sound pretty good to you if you were suffering under the thumb of a cruel oppressor. The fact is, your discomfort with the notion of the coming judgment of God might be evidence that you've never really experienced injustice or oppression, and for that you should be eternally grateful because that's not the life that a large percentage of people who live in this world today experience. Or your discomfort with the idea of, a coming, of the coming judgment of God might reveal that you haven't actually really thought it through. Now, what do I mean? If there is no judge, if there is no judgment, if God in Christ Jesus is not going to come again to judge the living and the dead, then life is meaningless. If there is no judge, if there is no final judgment, that means that there really isn't good and bad. There really isn't right and wrong. Because what we call right and wrong, what we call good and bad, doesn't really matter in the end. You can be Mother Teresa and give away your life in Calcutta. Or you can be Jordan Belfort, the wolf of Wall Street, living the high life and, and falling into crime and corruption, and it doesn't really matter. You can be a pastor or you can be a pedophile, and it doesn't really matter. Do you believe that? Here's the thing, nobody really believes that. Why is that? Why does everyone believe that there is a right and that there is a wrong? Why do we call a person who doesn't have a moral compass a sociopath or a psychopath? It's because, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter two, the law is written on our hearts. Everyone lives like there's a right and wrong. Everybody lives like there is a coming judgment. Which brings us to one last reason why someone might be uncomfortable with the thought of final judgment. It's this. It's because we all know deep down in our hearts that if we stood before a holy God and gave account for our lives, apart from his grace, we would be guilty. I mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth mentioning again. All of us live with a subterranean sense of guilt and shame. And the result is this, we avoid people who we know we've wronged. We often get angry or emotional when we are confronted. We worry about being found out. We have trouble sleeping or we get a stomach ache or we feel on edge or anxious or defensive or irritable. We try to justify ourselves. We overcompensate, we hide, we blame shift, we attack. Why do we do those things? It's because we all know on our own we are guilty. 
But the good news of the gospel is that we are not alone. Because while the day will come when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, if you are in Christ, he has already been judged in your place. He has already been found guilty in your place and he has been punished in your place. That's why the apostle Paul can say with celebration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how should the fact that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead impact and shape your today? I'll be quick. Let me talk to the non-Christians in the room. Friends, Jesus says this to you this morning. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to serve, but to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying to you, no matter who you are, no matter your story, no matter what you've done, come to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Won't you take him at his word? Now, let me talk to the Christians in the room. Beloved, the, the apostle Paul tells us that the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then the apostle Paul goes on to say this. He says that we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And then he applies that to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What a privilege. What an honor to be an instrument of God's grace. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you realize that that's not just my job? That's your job. That's not just my calling, it's your calling. And it's a privilege. We get to share with our neighbors the love of Christ, not just by what we do, but by what we say. Let me, let me close with this. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded, love God and love your neighbor. Now let me ask a question. What, what does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to love your neighbor? It certainly means more than this, but it cannot mean less. It means that we tell people about Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, who is our bridegroom, 
who is coming for his bride, who as our creator is coming to make all things new, and yes, who as our judge is coming to judge the living and the dead. That is your calling, that is my calling. Would God give us the grace to wait and be faithful? Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that history has a goal, that the day will come when you will return in all of your glory. We will see you, we will behold you in your glory and, and, and everything that's sinful in us will be, will be ex- sort of, it will explode out of us. We will be purified. We will be like you because we see you as you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back and that you are doing away with everything that's evil, everything that's bad in all of creation, natural disasters, racism, social injustice, hurtful words, physical pain. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back and you're gonna make all things new. Thank you that you're coming back to make all things new, but not only that, but that you're coming back to make us, to take us as your bride. That, that, when, that when, when that day comes, you will, you will welcome us into your house where there will be celebration forevermore, the wedding supper of the lamb. Lord, give us faith Give us faithfulness and empower us to wait, to wait in hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.